If you've ever wondered about what goes on behind the scenes at restaurants, then you're in the right place. This podcast takes you inside the minds of restaurant owners, chefs, bartenders, servers, basically anyone who has anything to do with food, drink, or hospitality. I'm Brady Vixilio, owner of Steinhober's Restaurant and La Bella Italia on Laskin Road in Virginia Beach. Welcome to The Check Podcast. I'm Alvin Williams, co-host of The Check and owner of Cobalt Grill Restaurant at Hilltop in Virginia Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We'll be talking about restaurants, people who work in restaurants, who own restaurants, and the people who like to dine in restaurants. Food, drinks, and service are at the center of any restaurant, but there's a lot more that goes into a restaurant experience than just what's on the menu. Many restaurants set the scene before any food or drinks ever arrive with a crisp tablecloth and a fresh cloth napkin for your lap. To help tell the story of how linen products make their way to the table, the Czech welcomes Donald and David Strominger, owners of Your Linen Service. The company was originally founded as Virginia Coat and Apron Supply Company by Irving Strominger and his two brothers, Moe and Henry, in 1934 in Petersburg, Virginia. Today, like so many of the supply chain businesses required to make a restaurant run smoothly, Your Linen Service acts as a partner as much as a service provider. So we welcome David and we welcome Donald Strominger to the chat. Well, thank you. We're happy to be here. Happy to have you. And, and nice Don, to join you. Donald, you're joining us remotely from Arizona. And so it's an honor to have you both. And it's exciting to have uh, have your son here and have you remotely and put it, put us all together. Thank you for the invitation. So where, where are you in Arizona, Donald? In uh, Scottsdale. Scottsdale. Oh, cool. Right. I've never been there. I hear it's gorgeous, though. Well, if, if you like the desert, uh, uh, we've had people from Virginia Beach come to visit us, and but they don't like it because uh, uh, you know you don't see any trees; uh, you see cactus. Donald, I know that the first thing you do when you um, come into my restaurant is uh, grab the corner of the tablecloth and you flip it over and you make sure that it's yours and you you check for uh, improper crease lines. Do you do that when you're out of town? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and you kick the mats. It, it, it's called getting lint in your blood. Yeah. <laughs> you get lint in your blood. Right. <laughs> your business has something in common with Steinhobers in that we are both part of family-run businesses that have been around since the 1930s. Can you tell us some more about that history? And what the business looks like now. Well, I think you have us beat by a few years, right? No, I, we're 1939, oh, so you okay. have us beat by a few years. Okay. Yeah, we're 1934. Yeah, well, as you indicated, uh, the business was originally started by my father and his two brothers. Uh, my father was an attorney and a CPA. Henry Strumminger was a tie salesman. And Mo Strumminger worked for a, a linen association in New York City. Back in 1934, they were just coming off the Depression, and ties were not selling too well. They heard about a one-route linen operation in Petersburg, Virginia, because they all were living in New York. And uh, they thought it might be good for their brother Henry. So they bought the one-route operation for Henry, and he turned out to be a good linen sales guy. The three brothers always wanted to be together, so they gave up what they were doing, and they all went into business together. 
Then over the years, uh, their success enabled them to expand. And today, well, we're going to be uh, we're working on our 87th year. Uh, we now cover a market area from Philadelphia to uh, South Carolina and from Virginia Beach to Cincinnati. You know, up until the, the virus hit, you know, business was great. Now, like everybody else, uh, the business is way off. We've survived this long, so we are determined we'll continue to survive. Determination makes a difference. It really does. Balvin and I, we talk about all the time how reinvention and 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 really just the drive to succeed is is the difference. And and I see that in your company. Well, uh, we have a lot of good people. Uh, I was a second generation. Uh, David is the third generation, and uh, he's a good leader. And he's surrounded himself with good people. And so uh, hopefully we'll be around for 100 years. Well, we say great people providing excellent service. So that's kind of our philosophy. That's what it comes down to is the people. Always. Absolutely. So, David, you're third generation running the company now. Is that right? I am. Do you feel you've been dealt a bad card with the virus right now and you've got to manage and keep things going along? Or is this just one of the speed bumps in the road that you normally have? I think this is a speed bump in the road. I don't think it's a bad card. I think it's a bad card for the world. Yeah. Actually, I, I, you know, um, you know, the the medical effects in this pandemic, what it's done, you know, forget individual businesses, but just for families, um, we've never seen anything like it, and I hope we never see anything like it again in our lifetime. But I think there's some great benefits that have come out of it in terms of really giving people the opportunity to really look inside themselves and understand their purpose for being here. And um, enjoying the relationships they have with their families and caring about each other. And, and I think, you know, 2020, I think hopefully uh, 10 years from now when people look back, they'll remember more of the good things that came out of this crazy year than the bad things. Um, right now, all we can see in front of us are the bad things. But there's, as of uh, January, you know, um, you know, we're in 2021, I think it's going to turn a little light bulb that everyone feels that 2020 was a loss. I think the positivity and the outlook, I think, is going to change. So, you know, for our industry, we say our customer's success is our success. And so what it's done for us when this pandemic hit was really how can we be there for our customers? It wasn't about what are our sales look like. It was about we can't survive without our customer's survival. You went as far as that. I mean, a, a personal experience of mine of, of that philosophy is that you had a, a lot of, um, I guess there are seconds in in, uh, in bar mops and he started to distribute those to anybody who needed them and just couldn't pay for them. Uh, even people who aren't your customers, you offered did. them too. We, we, we went through all of our rags because, you know, sanitation was very important and we actually put signs out in front of all our facilities, offered them to the general public, anything they could do to clean up commercial facilities, private facilities. The safety and health of our communities is something that we've always said. It's a tagline on on all our letterheads and everything for years and, you know, protecting the health of the communities we serve. And, and I think some people just kind of passed over it, but, you know, I used to tell our team that we're this silent service. Laundries are this silent service. Can you imagine if every laundry went away in the United States? Forget this pandemic, you know, your hospitals couldn't function, you know, the sanitized, you know, textiles you use in a restaurant isn't there. You'd have to go to a disposable and you look at what happened with the disposables just in the healthcare industry. You can't keep up. You're reliant on some manufacturer outside this country. So reusable textiles is, it's first of all, it's the right thing to do for the environment, but it's also 
quiet industry as the backbone of keeping this country running. And the other thing that we've always liked about our industry also in general is that no one's figured out how to put dirty linen on a 747 and fly it overseas, right? So you have to be a local community-based company because that's where you employ your team and uh, we have to have access to our customers, right? You do that by being locally based. You can maybe go out a few hundred miles away from a customer, but you still have to stay pretty close. Hey, Donald, uh, when Henry first started that one route laundry service in Petersburg, he did that, that route with a horse and buggy. No, no, no. He, he, he had a truck. He had a truck. <laughs> <laughs> he had a truck. Okay. You had wooden wash wheels in those days, didn't you? Yeah. When I first came into the company, I got out of the Army in 1961. When I first came to the company, we had a plant in Norfolk. Uh, but, of course, in Norfolk, we used the name Sanitary Linen Service. We had wooden wash wheels. Can you describe what that is, Donald? Uh, well, it's a big cylinder. You know, uh, the wash wheels. We Well, for instance, if you have a washer dryer at home, and the largest home washer they make is like 18 pounds. Our wash wheels today will hold over a thousand pounds of linen. So the wheel is the actual drum that the that the laundry goes into, right? Okay. Uh, it's a cylinder, and uh, uh, it's a horizontal cylinder. And the wooden wash wheels we had in Norfolk were uh, held about four hundred pounds each, and uh, it had you know wooden slats, uh, you know, formed into a cylinder and held together by a steel band. And then you simply had an on-off switch. You had to have a guy in the washroom who was like a chef. He knew how to wash. You'd have a like an opening in the side of the washer, and he'd put in the detergents and the soaps and the bleaches. Not have a electronic or a computer run in it. One of the first projects I had was I wanted to get rid of those wooden wash wheels and put in stainless steel wash wheels. And interesting enough, I sold it to our competitor, National Linen, who was a public company who's no longer in business. But, Probably because uh, you sold them all those wooden wash wheels that rotted out on them. <laughs> that was a good plan. Yeah. <laughs> but today, uh, you know, you've got all stainless steel cylinders, and they're run by computers. And uh, all the washing ingredients uh, go into a 10-step formula. It's all done, uh, you know, automatically. And uh, then they also have uh, what's called a tunnel washer, which we have in some plants. And it's a long cylinder uh, with about 14 pockets. You drop the linen in one end, and the water, the fresh water, comes in from the opposite end. So the soiled linen moves through the cylinder, and uh, every, like every two minutes, the, the entire cylinder does a double 360-degree turn so that it shifts one compartment forward. So as the load moves from the soil end to the clean end, the clean water came in at the clean end, moves towards the dirty end. So you're reusing water, and you cut your water consumption in half. So kind of the water moves south and the laundry moves north kind of thing. Exactly. So the industry as a whole over the last 20 years has literally cut its water consumption per unit processed in half. And so we've done a lot to really help the environment. 
There's also some other changes that have happened in the business barcodes. Some people use, you have these vacuum tube systems. You were a, um, an engineer and you invented a towel folder at one point. Well, yeah, I'm still licensed as a professional engineer. Uh, I still keep up my license. We found a, uh, a, a towel folder, oh, probably about 50 some years ago. That manufacturer ended up going out of business. But it was a very, very good towel folder. So uh, when they went out of business, I took that original folder and worked with another manufacturer to uh, create one that was now run by a computer. And uh, it, it worked out very nicely. Do you still use that towel folder? We still have them running in the plants. David, Donald's mentioned some of the different things you've done, like switching from wood to stainless steel. And <laughs> what are some of the uh, other innovations or technology that you've improved over the years and that sets you apart from your competitors right now? Well, at the end of the day, I think really what separates us from everyone else is our people. So you can embrace technology and you can embrace, you know, anything inside the plant or the computers, great spreadsheets and fancy brochures. But at the end of the day, it's still the personal relationship, I think, that makes the difference. Similar to restaurants, I suppose. So um, what these tools have enabled us to do is really maintain and reduce costs, right? So we talk about all this innovation in our laundry facilities about basically, you know, in a laundry, you really only do a few things. You... We count the linen, we remove dirt, we remove water, and we mend. That's really the only things that really happen within a laundry, except now we're just doing it more efficiently. So that's really, we've had to innovate and upgrade just to continue to maintain costs down because, you know, they're capital investments, which reduce, you know, um, you know, your cost of labor, right? So, you know, we want people uh, in the United States doing less manual labor and doing more, you know, mine labor, Right. So we're using robotics and technology to help do that in our laundry facilities. As far as innovations uh, in IT, it's also gathering data and seeking trends that happen with our customers in the restaurant business. We're trying to understand when does their seasonality kick in? How do they use our textiles? So we've spent a lot of time kind of doing forecasting and understanding uh, inventory control. So they have the right stuff the right textile at the right place at the right time. So one, it's about communications. We have to have good communication. And two, really do understanding the seasons and what's going on. You know, I, I started my career here in, in, in Norfolk and then I eventually moved and started up our business in outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. And um, it was different because the seasons here, you know, summer season was completely different than when I went to the mountains. And then we had to worry about football games with UVA and JMU. And so you start learning when, when the restaurant needs are, if it's at a home game, then we know what we got to do. If it's off season, what do we do? And so I, it was, it's a good skill set. And, and I will tell you the one thing that again does differentiate as much as we've embraced technology, we still want human beings looking at things, right? So it's been kind of funny because as we transitioned in, we got a lot of pushback from some of our younger managers. Well, we don't need this. We don't need the computer can do this. And, and I said, yeah, it can, but you still need human beings on the phone that know these customers and can tell us when the computer is full of baloney, right? Because, you know, fat fingers could make mistakes and we've got to make an adjustment. You know, human beings can still understand their customers better than computers sometimes. 
we've also spent a lot of time on textile technology. You know, we're a little different that uh, we don't buy from one vendor this week and then get a better deal from this imported vendor from another week. We try to strictly buy uh, domestic products as most as, as best we can. Unfortunately, a lot of the weaving has moved you know, outside the United States. So it's mostly finishing that takes place in the United States. You know, the gray goods might come in from India, but they might be bleached and finished and sewn you know, in a factory inside the United States and the Carolinas or down south, typically where the textile you know, finishing processes are. We've been able to buy what we call a better textile, like a bar towel that might be used in your kitchen or a kitchen towel that has a better weave. So your chefs can use it more than once, right? Yep. Kind of like the bounty of, you know, the quicker picker upper, right? So yeah. you use two, you know, two of a competitor's towel versus one of a bounty. We kind of do that a little bit with the the weight of our bar towels. Our aprons have a little bit of uh, technology in there that are antibacterial, actually, because we would have problems with mildew and those types of things. And so it fights off mildew. So it's easier to clean and it's uh, kind of safer for the chefs. We work on giving uh, be better, broader cuts to our, our chef wear, as well as with our aprons so that robust chefs and, you know, and you want to make sure you got full coverage. The other things that we've done, a lot of the, the table and napery that we do offer, uh, some of it's gone to spun polyester, and we still um, partner with a company called Millican. Again, it's a domestic manufacturer in South Carolina, and uh, we found them to be the most reliable sources than doing imports because you, they have a very good quality control system. And then the other thing, we still find that about half of our customers in the hospitality space still use 100% cotton. So we've also felt like we want to be on the, uh, the high end. And uh, so we partnered with several manufacturers, textile manufacturers in Italy that are designing and weaving fabrics for us uh, that we serve to a lot of our customers. So we do a lot of specialty work that helps um, our, on, our, on our hospitality side differentiate themselves from others, but also has a, a, what we call life of linen. It lasts longer, higher quality, and um, so that the end user gets the benefit of it. I don't know if you know this, but bar towels to a chef in the kitchen and to our cooks are like gold. <laughs> and they are revered and we usually dish out, you know, two or three to each person at the beginning of the shift. Ration them. And it's rationed. And then sometimes they're hidden and stashed because when you're cooking, you need that bar towel to, to grab a pan or, and they protect us and they, you know, protect us from being burnt or scalded. And they are extremely important. So thank you for providing. But what's interesting is if you go to Europe, they typically don't use a terry bar towel. They, they typically use a, you know, kitchen towel or like a herringbone towel, which we would love to see more of that in the United yeah. States. But uh, years ago, um, I think National Linen, I might be wrong, Dad, um, introduced that terry towel as a less expensive alternative to a kitchen towel. But I, No, you're, you're absolutely right. That's where it came from. You know, the kitchen towel, I, I think if you travel through Europe, it's really interesting that they don't use a terry towel and the chefs seem to love it and they actually come with little hooks and you can put them on your uh, aprons and uh, David Alvin is from is from England, where where that's where he started his chefing career. Alvin, did you have a herringbone towel with a hook in England? You know, I seem to remember that we did, but we only got one towel. One towel. <laughs> yeah, it's probably true because they're much larger towels. <laughs> yeah, and they yeah. would allocate them, yeah, that, iron yeah. them, and they they look like a you know now those. It's kind of interesting because we did develop a really heavy duty uh, red stripe kitchen towel and now you're seeing those as the quote-unquote bistro napkins right yeah. so that's mm -hmm. kind of where it came from except now they're mostly seen in polyesters not cotton and the difference of polyester versus cotton of course if you touch something hot with a polyester towel you're going to burn your hand whereas with the cotton you don't yeah uh, it turns into molten, yeah. molten now, plastic. Now, 
uh, the apron that we use uh, has, has a high cotton content for that reason. So that uh, if you grab a, a pot with your apron, uh, you won't burn yourself. And that happens sometimes when you forgot where you put your bar towel. Yeah, or you've you, you, you burned yep. through your. And you need to get some out of the oven in a in a hurry. Yeah, you've, you've burned through your allocation for the you, night. <laughs> you, you know what's kind of interesting is the old chef word. So you know, so many people don't remember. You know, I think is uh, a gentleman by Angelique. I think is that right, Dad? That was the original inventor of the uh, chef coat, right? Um, yeah, that's he, where uh, I think uh, Angelica's name came from. And so he was a um, a chef on a uh, train. And uh, evidently, um, so he created a few things. So I guess his wife did, maybe, but he gets the credit, and that's usually what happens. Um, <laughs> but uh, so he was a chef on, on the train, and um, sometimes he'd have to go out and see the guests, so he had to go forward facing. And so he was evidently the one that came up with the double breastage, you know, so you can reverse. So you, uh, yeah. he would get dirty, and then you'd reverse, and then Flip rebutton, the yeah. and you'd hide the dirt. And then the second thing, which has now been modified, because you don't see this anymore, but in the old days, when the sleeves were completely unrolled on a chef coat, they extended well beyond your hand, because you would use that to grab your pans. And then it started rolling up. And then, of course, manufacturers, to save costs, kept the design, but shortened the sleeve. Huh. Interesting. I never knew that. That's great. I kind of wish we still had those long sleeves. <laughs> that would come in handy. We found that we've had to use um, so many different disposable products during COVID to help keep our guests safe. To-go boxes and plastic cups and paper napkins and plastic silverware, et cetera, et cetera. And the list just keeps going on. And in contrast to that, when you think about linen, it really does seem to be like an environmentally friendly and responsible business. What do you do to maximize sustainability and minimize environment, the environmental impact? You know, we've seen a lot of pullback, unfortunately, during COVID where people felt like a disposable was better than a reusable. And we think there's um, a data to support that's not the case. Um, there's a lot of studies done just on the tabletops themselves where they would come in and take swabs with a tablecloth, without a tablecloth. And, and even though we think we're really scrubbing and cleaning now today, they're much more conscious, I'm sure, than they were pre-COVID when you yeah. wipe down a, t a table. But with a tablecloth, you know, being exchanged after, you know, every use, then you definitely would have a, a safer environment. In, for, in terms of, you know, what we do for environmental, you know, besides all the things we do in the laundry itself, you know, we have a, achieved the Clean Green certification from our national association. We were the first multi-plant, multi-state company to achieve that goal when they first came out. And we've been part of what's called Laundry ESP, which is a, a, a stewardship program uh, that we our industry worked proactively to find ways to reduce the amount of chemicals, water, and energy used to make dirty linen clean. So we've been doing that for, for many, many years. But in terms of internally, we're very careful about, uh, of course, reducing our footprint through the use of paper. So we still use, we, we still use, we use handhelds for all our deliveries and trying to go more and more through emails and those things. But the linens that we use actually have several steps before they're finally discarded. You know, if we have a large tablecloth that we can't, get clean or it has a stain or it gets a hole, we continuously reduce its size okay. so that we can continue to reuse it. Repurpose it. Exactly. And then we actually have the ability to dye it. So it still might be hygienically clean, but it happened to get a stain that we just can't get out without physically ruining the textile. But we can then go ahead and dye it a darker color. So it's still hygienically clean, but then it can have another life. So we do a lot of those things. We have, we do the same thing with terry towels. If they start to get holes, we can 
You know, we have a whole line of, we call them doggy towels. So we do things at veterinary hospitals and things like that. That um, So we're able to downgrade towels. We, we do the same thing with our uh, walk-off mats with uh, dyeing and, and, and turning them to different sizes. So we, we have kind of a whole downgrade system. So we're almost cradle to grave. We have been working very hard on um, the polyester to try to find ways that when they finally can't be reused, can they be repurposed? And we've worked with several different nonprofits and trying to find ways for them to find a reuse. The problem is the monetization of it. It is so expensive sometimes to take a plastic and then repurpose it. But we haven't given up hope and we're working with a couple of manufacturers to do it. You know, I think everyone wants a repurposed napkin, right? So it'd be great to say all the napkins we have, you know, were once plastic cups or where they were a different color and they were kind of melted down and reused again. The problem is if I come to you and say, it's going to cost you 50% more to get this completely 100% recycled product, the appetite isn't there, especially now to have that. So we're trying to find ways to reduce that difference between a new, newly manufactured product and a reusable product. There's a focus on life of the linen, um, a partnership with customers to get as many washings as possible. What does it take to have an effective partnership? Perfect textile care. And what I mean by that is, um, especially in today's world with this COVID, it's the, 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 the double handling of things, right? So we like to separate the front of the house linen uh, from, we call it the heart of the house. I guess I said back of the house earlier, the heart is, you know, the kitchens where it all happens. That's nice. I've never oh, heard that before. Have to, I, I have to like that. that. <laughs> the heart of the house. So the heart of the house, you know, which has your heavily soiled aprons and towels. So as long as our customers can keep those things separate, you know, we do wash them under different formulas, but, you know, you're not transferring those heavily greasy, you know, greasy grimy stuff with yeah. front of the house linen. Um, so we work with that. We do the same thing uh, with our customers that get terry towels and sheets and pillowcases. So if they can help us with separation, then it's a little bit less handling, especially during this COVID days, you know, since we have all the precautions we take in our soil room department. But those are the things that we need to try to preserve the life, right? So again, anytime that you have to wash something harder, that takes more energy to do that. So if we can wash things right, it's no different at home, right? You wash your darks different than your lights. You're out in the yard and on your knees, you know, working in the garden, you're going to wash that a little differently. You than, got the delicate cycle or exactly. the heavy, yeah. So we, we just kind of follow the same thing. And also it's about, you know, the quality of the textile you buy. I think I mentioned that earlier. We buy, we think a better textile, which gives our end user a better product. And that also plays into it. Another challenge the restaurant and hospitality industries have faced involves being singled out by politicians as places that need ever-increasing regulation and restrictions related to the pandemic. I know from our own restaurants and from what I've seen at other establishments, there's an extraordinary dedication to cleanliness, sanitation, and safety. What have been your observations on both, both in terms of Restaurant, how restaurants have responded during the past years and what government might do to be more helpful? I don't think they've been helpful at all, to be honest with you. You know, I've been amazed at the strength and the resilience of of the restaurant industry and what they've done so far to overcome. I think the creativity with uh, building this outdoor dining has been amazing. uh, And it's nice to see some creative ideas. We're actually working with a couple of customers now of coming up with little lap blankets and things like that to try to get through the winter where we can wash them and wrap them and do some kind of neat things. Um, you know, that's a little tricky because uh, you still got to get people. It's like a getting an airline blanket, right? So was it really cleaned? 
So we have to get over that perception level. I think the hospitality sector employs so many wonderful people. And I think there has not been enough effort to support that industry or promote it. In fact, you know, we're all reading now about the new restrictions and uh, they were kind of going, talking about going backwards. From our experience in coming into the restaurant since COVID is that I think it's, it's they're doing twice as much as necessary to maintain the safety of the guests. I mean, I feel more confident now going into a restaurant than I ever did before. Not that restaurants weren't good before, but I have not witnessed. And, and we have an opportunity to walk in the back of a restaurant, right? So we sometimes see some that are excellent and some that maybe could be a little better. I don't think we've had a report from any of our team that we've seen anyone that's not extremely impressed with what they've seen coming in the back door and what they've done through the front door in the front of the house in terms of how they're handling the safety of their guests. I just think the biggest challenge is going to be the winter and uh, you know those that are able to maintain their takeout business and some have done exceptionally well the way you do your food p- pickup and all that kind of good stuff uh, to how they've figured out a way to maintain outdoor dining as well as indoor dining safely. I would love to see more by politicians to help to help the sector. Well, we're going to lighten things up a little bit right now. We have uh, a new segment that we've called the lightning round. Donald, you still there with us? I'm here. Donald, you've probably been into a lot of restaurants over the years, been in this business. Can you tell me what is your favorite meal? What is my favorite meal? Yes, sir. Personally, <laughs> yeah. what I will order at least 50% of the time. Yeah. Uh, I like oysters. Raw, and, steamed, uh, or, or, or grilled? Fried. No, uh, raw oysters. Raw oysters, okay. And uh, and uh, I enjoy a uh, uh, a bone-in fillet. Wow. All right. Great answer. And for you, David, what is your favorite movie or TV show? Well, Gladiator, I think, is actually my favorite movie. Nice. Not much linen in that movie. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I thought you were going to say The Laundry Man or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I always root for the underdog, so I, you know, I feel like he got a lot of heck in that, in that movie. Donald, what's your favorite place in the world to, to visit or vacation? I always wanted to go to Australia, but I could never take the time off to go because you can't go to Australia uh, in a week. It takes you two days to get there and two days to get back. And so I always determined that if I was ever going to go to Australia, I had to go for five weeks. Wow. But I could never go because I could never leave the business for five weeks. But then about 15 years ago, uh, David had been in the business long enough and he was running it uh, pretty well and could take five weeks. And uh, my wife and I and will be married uh, 54 years January. Congratulations. Uh, we and, and, and thank you. And we and some other good friends, uh, just the four of us, five weeks to Australia. Did it on our own. We didn't do it through a tour group. Uh, we made up our own itinerary and we drove. First we went to New Zealand and then we went to Australia. And we literally drove across both countries and drove 2,500 miles. Holy cow. We had a great time. And the interesting thing is, you know, when you go with another couple, you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner for five weeks together. You either end up hating each other or loving each other. 
Well, we ended up loving each other, and we've taken many trips since. Well, it's a little afternoon here, so I'm actually pouring a beverage for us in the studio. Sorry, you're you're not a part of this. Uh, well, it's only five o'clock someplace <laughs> in the world. So. <laughs> well, I don't have a virtual glass for you. But um, what, uh, David, is your favorite beverage? I'm a wine guy, so I would say uh, a nice glass of red wine. Great answer. Man after my own heart. Donald, what are three words that you think best describe you? Well, probably if you ask my wife, she'll give you three different words that I'll come <laughs> up with. And if you ask David, he'll give you three different words other than my wife. Well, I'm asking you. So, <laughs> Well, I, uh, I think I'm an entrepreneur. And my definition of an entrepreneur is uh, you're willing to take risks and live with the results. You're somewhat creative, uh, stubborn, because you don't give up easy. I, I think an entrepreneur is, is probably has to be creative. And he also has to be stubborn because most of the time people will tell you that what you want to do won't work. And, and you have to be tenacious enough to say, well, let's find out. The only way you're going to find out is if you try it. I, I think the true mark of a, of a successful business is living with your decisions over the long term. David, you're third generation. You're obviously um, extremely passionate and knowledgeable about your industry. I would like to know, if you weren't doing this, what would be your dream job? I always wanted to be a pilot. All right. <laughs> really? I didn't, know you. I didn't know you always wanted to be a pilot. I did. <laughs> really? Did you know that I had a uh, pilot's license for a short period of time? I did. <laughs> well, I didn't have a pilot license. I had a learner's permit. And, and the reason I gave it up and I never really followed through was because I got married. They wanted to increase my life insurance rates to a point I couldn't afford it because I had this learner's permit. And so I gave up the learner's permit to keep my insurance rates where I could afford it. Well, maybe Dad can step in for five weeks while you go and fly planes. <laughs> <laughs> Donald, what is the best advice you've ever received? Well, I was very fortunate. When I went in the Army, I went in the Army in uh, 1959. It was only 14 years after the war, and I was stationed in Germany. Uh, but I was with an uh, engineer group, the 37th uh, Combat Engineers, stationed outside of Frankfurt. The uh, assistant commander of uh, the 37th Engineer Group was a colonel who somehow took a liking to me and uh, became my mentor. Probably the, the biggest thing is you got to accept responsibility, and, and you got to lead up front, not from the back. Well, Donald, thank you uh, so much for being a great guest and showing us some insight into your industry. We appreciate your time. Thank you for the invitation. It's our pleasure, and David, thank you very much for stopping in and seeing us. Oh, this is wonderful. So happy to be included. Anytime you want me back, this would be great. All right. Check us out on the checkpodcast.com for pictures of this episode. Um, we're going to have some links of some things that we've talked about with uh, lots of good photos that David's sharing with us. And, of course, transcripts. Transcripts and past episodes. Well, thank you for joining us here on the Check Podcast. I'm Alvin. I'm Brady. And this is The, the Check. Check.